Hey everybody, welcome to Faith and Culture. We are launching episode one today. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been building up to this moment and we're so grateful that you're tuning in and checking out Faith and Culture. Now, what we're gonna be doing is we're taking issues in our culture and we're really learning how to apply our faith to those situations. And we're excited about that, thrilled to get going with that, but also on a Sunday, when I give a message or we have a certain sermon series going on, I wanna be able to come back throughout the week and bring extra content to really bring a fuller understanding of what we're talking about because we only get about 30 minutes on a Sunday to really dive into topics. And so really thrilled about that. Recently, we did the series Twisted Scripture, and we talked about different religious organizations, different cults, and man, we could have been doing this for really weeks and weeks and weeks, and I wanted to bring in some guests that have been part of these different cults and different religions, and so today, I want to introduce you to Jason Siekman, and Jason's here to share a little bit about his experience with the Mormons when he was part of the Mormon group, and Jason, tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you got started in that group. Thank you, Pastor Jeremy. Well, I'm glad to be here, first of all. I'm glad to see we're getting this off the ground, so I'm excited about it and for all you've been doing for the church. Uh, a little background on myself. Um, I was raised Catholic. I became Mormon when I was probably about 19 years old, and then um, since then had left that church and have been here at Skyline for probably about three years now. And uh, currently I'm uh, serving on the board here and teaching the step four class for our core four and running a small group. So just enjoying life here at Skyline. That's awesome. So now, how did you originally get involved with the Mormon church? How did that all come about? So going a little bit before that, you know, having been raised Catholic, uh, my parents were very Catholic. I really didn't have a good understanding of that original faith. So I have to give that as a background because when I was approached by people who were members of the Mormon church, I didn't have a really good frame of reference for religion or even understanding really what I believed. Uh, the way I got involved in it was about my senior year in high school. I, I made friends with people at my school who were members of the Mormon church. And uh, some of the nicest people I've ever met continue to this day to be some of the nicest people I've ever known. Yeah. And uh, they had really introduced me to their church and uh, to the teachings of the church. And that's basically how I got started. And just to start off the bat, you know, the original teachings that I got exposed to were, they were not that far off from, I think, the teachings that we would share at church on Sunday. Um, you know, a lot of it started with just a basic introduction to Jesus Christ and how the concept of the Trinity, three, uh, three persons and one God, that was all, that all made a lot of sense to me and having a personal relationship with something that was really attractive to me. And that was what got me started, both the, the kindness of the people in the church as well as this introduction to a Jesus Christ that I really didn't understand or know at that time. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned in high school, for me, um, not growing up in the church or anything like that, I remember I had some high school buddies that were part of the Mormon church. And I didn't know what a Mormon church was from a, any other church, really. But I, I remember them inviting me to their uh, sports stuff because the Mormons do a lot of sports. And I just remember I was so into sports. And so they're like, hey, we got this volleyball league going on. You want to join us? I say, yeah, sure. I'll go, you know, anytime I can play sports. So I went, played sports, and then they had a basketball league going. I got involved in the basketball league. And I just thought about it later because 
you know, I went off to play baseball. And so I wasn't going to be part of any of that. But I just thought to myself, you know, that was a really good way of them reaching people was through their sports programs. And that's a big deal to them, knowing our culture is sports minded. And so there is something about them reaching into culture like they're 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 smart in that way a lot of a lot of groups are very smart in how they go about trying to attract people whether it's a cult a religious group or whatever and they're trying to meet a need and that's always kind of what happens right when someone because people always say how how in the world could someone fall for a cult well they're meeting some need there so when you got interested in it and started to really attend uh, you mentioned a little bit about that, that they were meeting a need there. But then what did it turn into over the course of time? Was it relationships were built? Was it well, like, what was it there that kept you in it? So, I mean, what you said about the need, completely spot on. Um, you know, at that time, I was probably about, I was maybe 18 years old. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. I was debating going to the military, going to college, and I just felt really empty and relationship-wise kind of lost. I mean, I just didn't have a lot of friends. I had friends, but not close friends. And so the friendship was a need that I had. So that was one of the things that, that fulfilled that. Um, but as, as time went on, I also realized that I, I needed a relationship with God. I didn't have a relationship with God. And I didn't have any other frame of reference. I, I, at that time, I did have Christian friends. Um, but they weren't inviting me to church. And I'm not saying that to indict them, but just the fact is that none of my Christian friends were really inviting me to church, but the Mormons were. See, isn't that interesting? Because that's what a lot of... We should be doing that, right? As, yeah. as Christians, we should be out doing that. And some cults, they, they're out there pushing you know, lies, but they're doing the inviting. Mm-hmm. And to, to people, they feel like, well, they care about me because they're inviting me to their thing. And so to continue on your point, I just thought, yeah, that's what we should be doing. We should be inviting people. And we don't often do a very good job of that as Christians. But Yeah, and, and again, my, my friends who were Christians at the time, I don't, I don't fault them for it. I mean, you know, just life just happens the yeah. way it happens. But, um, you know, the Mormon church, at least at the introduction, they, they put a high value on the Bible. Now, I learned later on that they don't really, in reality, put as high a value on the Bible. But initially, the Great Commission is, is a big thing within the church. And so sharing the gospel was huge. And so they were putting a lot of effort into that. And, uh, you know, other things that really resonated with me, too, within the church was, you know, their strong sense of family. I mean, they, they really do. Uh, I would see their families and, you know, my friends would invite me over to their homes. And just the level of kindness and love in there was, was really, really huge. And I remember one of the things they would, would tell me was, and this was kind of used as evidence to support, you know, the validity of the gospel was this, you know, this idea that, you know, by your fruits, you shall know them, right? It's like if a, if a, a bad tree can't produce good fruit and a good tree can't produce bad fruit. And therefore, when you see all of these good things in the Mormon church, that is evidence that the church itself is good. Mm-hmm. Now, I came to realize later, much later, again, we're talking about 18-year-old Jason who doesn't know anything about religion or, or logical fallacies or, you know, I was not a police detective yet or anything like that. Um, it, it, it made sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I came to realize later that that's not really a good basis to judge uh, a church on because there are people in that church who were not producing good, good fruit, that didn't invalidate their church. Just like at our church, there's people who don't produce 
good fruit, and that doesn't invalidate our church either. It's not a really reasonable basis to, to, to judge whether or not a church is a valid church and whether all of its teachings are true or not. Um, so, so yeah, that was, that was one of those kinds of fallacies that I ran into. You know, another, another thing that they really, um, and, and I know you talked about this in your, your series, but you talked about, you know, the, the psychological manipulation, mm -hmm. which, by the way, most Mormons don't, don't know that they're doing. Right. They don't realize that they're doing it. They're, as a matter of fact, most of them are are victims of the same manipulation themselves. It's it's they're not applying to others anything different than what's been applied to them. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I I came to realize later was a bit of a manipulation was the whole basis for how you come about accepting um, some of the some of the teachings that aren't accurate. I mean, the reason I said is that the analogy I kind of think of in my head is. Um, in my backyard, I have a lemon tree. I have this beautiful lemon tree. It grows in the backyard. And my neighbor has this creeping vine, a morning glory vine. I don't know if you're familiar with the morning glory, but it's got these hooks on it, and it grabs onto everything, and it just overgrows whatever it grows onto. Well, I love my, orange, my lemon tree. My lemon tree is beautiful, and, and, uh, and I wasn't paying attention. And one day, my neighbor's morning glory grabbed onto that lemon tree and just covered it, mm. just covered it with the vine leaves and... and um, and it looked green, so I thought my, my lemon tree is doing well. And after a while, I realized that green is not coming from my lemon tree anymore. It is coming from this vine that has grown on top of this lemon tree. And, um, and so what I ended up doing is I, I said, oh, enough of this. So I grabbed that vine, and I just yanked it off the tree, and in the process probably pulled, like, every leaf off of my lemon tree. Yeah. So then I've got this bare, like, barely alive lemon tree. And, and to me, that's kind of an analogy for how, you know, my faith was, my experience in the Mormon church was. With the lemon tree, it was this, this foundation. It was my initial acceptance in the Mormon church was based on this belief of Jesus as the Son of God and the, the, the validity and divinity of the Bible and the importance of church and the importance of baptism and accepting Jesus Christ to be saved, that's, that's the lemon tree. And, and everybody who starts off in the Mormon church starts with the lemon tree. The problem is the vines. And the vines are, in my opinion, at the very beginning, at the outset, it's, it's the Book of Mormon and it's Joseph Smith. Mm -hmm. And it, even if you took the Mormon religion, if you were to take Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon out of it, you would actually end up with a pretty close proximity to a typical Christian religion. But you can see how all of this, all this vine that comes in just, just it, 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 it covers it and yeah. it makes it difficult. That's a good analogy. Yeah. And so, so what I didn't realize at the time was that, you know, in, in joining the church, I was, I was feeling great. I mean, I felt wonderful because it's Jesus Christ and I really had never felt like I had a relationship with Jesus. And I really do feel like the spirit was talking to me and was, was telling me this is a good thing. Mm. Um, and I think that every, you know, most Mormons, they're going to tell you that they've had a legitimate, valid spiritual experience when they first joined the church. And I, I think they're telling the truth. The problem is, is that at, right at the outset, they couple this, this spiritual feeling of joy and, and kind of euphoria. It immediately gets connected with Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon, right? So it's like, okay, here's the Bible. Here's Jesus Christ. And now, in addition to the Bible, there's this other book called the Book of Mormon, and it's another testament of Jesus Christ. Mm. And even from the outset, I didn't really buy into the Book of Mormon. It was, it was kind of a tough sell. But, and this, is, this was the key, and this was kind of the linchpin of how, how I feel I got hooked, was 
They would tell you, okay, if you want to know if Joseph Smith is a real prophet, if you want to know if this Book of Mormon really is true, go home and pray to God. James chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, right? Any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and upbraideth not. Sorry, I'm quoting the King James Version, right? Because that's what <laughs> that's we what use there. He answers your prayers, and he will tell you whether or not this is true or not. And they taught me that, you know, the way that you can tell if God is telling you that this is true is that when you make that prayer, you're going to feel good. Hmm. And that's the Spirit telling you that this book is true and that Joseph Smith really is a prophet and that everything we're telling you is true. And so I look back at that. I felt really, I did the prayer. I, I prayed down on my knees and I prayed and I, I felt like God really told me that that was the answer. But really what it was, was I just felt really good. Yeah. And when I think about it, why did I feel good? Well, I felt good because thinking about Jesus makes you feel good yeah. because the Bible made me feel good. And because all of my friends made me feel good. And I wanted to be a part of something that connected me with God. And that felt good. Um, but now I know, looking back, just because you feel good in response to those things does not mean that God is telling you that this book is true and that Joseph Smith is a prophet. And so it's a bit of, um, I don't even know psychologically. You can ask Bill Wells when you ever have interview him on here. He's great with the psychology. Yeah. But um, it's, uh, there's a level of, of some kind of psychological replacement, you know. Mm -hmm. it's, and, and, and so the two become united. And, and that's where I think most Mormons struggle today is that they can't disassociate the lemon tree from the vine anymore. Yeah. Because their emotions and that, that feeling in their heart has, has fused the two to the point where at some point you, you would have come to me and, and criticized the Book of Mormon and to me, it would have felt like you were criticizing Jesus Christ. Yeah. And now I don't have that association, but that's because I've learned to differentiate the vine from the lemon tree. Yeah, it totally makes sense. That's a great analogy. And I think, you know, it's, it's clear of when we talk about twisted scripture, right? It's that idea that there is scripture there, but then things get twisted. Even how, go to scripture, you know, you go to James 1 and pray about it. See if it's right. Well, I'm, I'm in the truth now. I'm praying based on the truth of the word of God. So it makes total sense that you would go, yeah, this, this makes sense. You know, this feels good. And it's, that's the thing about so many of these groups is that there's scripture involved or there's something with Jesus involved, like we talked about during the series. But man, there's just that, that twist of it that they've added their own stuff to it. And so many of these groups feel like I need to add something to it. Or if you go back to the origins of Joseph Smith, you just go, what were they even thinking? And I think it just spiraled, right? It probably just kept spiraling and spiraling to build to what it became. And so you're in there for a while in... What was the moment where, or moments, where you really started to sense, like, hold on a second? Because you're having these good feelings, and, and a lot of people do, because like we said, these groups meet a need at some level. A lot of times it's relational. Uh, they meet those needs. And so you're in the group, and you're starting to realize something's off here. What, 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 what was that? Well, you know, and, and before I answer that, though, real quick, I just want to say one other additional thing that, that also... Uh, made it difficult for me was that um, in learning about the Mormon church, I also began to have Christian friends who, who were legitimately concerned about me uh, and were, were, were trying to encourage me away from the Mormon church. The problem I ran into was that some of them were not what I would call credible. 
you know, they were, they were making arguments against the Mormon church, but they weren't valid arguments. You know, like, for example, some of them would tell me, hey, if you were to, if you were to leave the Mormon church, everyone would shun you. And maybe that's been some people's experience, but that, I'd never seen that happen. And to this day, this isn't happened to me. You know, my, my wife's family, they are very, very much in the Mormon church, and they adore us. I mean, we have a really good relationship with them. And when we talk about Jesus, as long as we don't mention the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith, we're good. We get along pretty well. But, um, but people would tell me things like that, and it, it made it difficult to believe them over you know, over the Mormon church. So not only was I comparing the Mormon church against my own beliefs, but I'm comparing it against what other people are telling me. And some people weren't giving me accurate information. So I guess one of the things I would say is that as Christians, not only do we need to be inviting to church, but we need to really make sure that if we're going to make claims against the Mormon church, that they're accurate. Because, That's interesting you know, because that has like people that emailed me or talked to me in the lobby, that was much of their experience. So I wonder if it's like a lot of churches in the sense that Depends on the ward. Do they call them wards typically, or do they call them churches? Yeah, no, they call um, they call them wards. Yeah. The, the ward is basically um, it's a geographic unit. Okay. So, so an area is divided into wards, and wards make up stakes. Okay. So, yeah, when you we would say we're going to church. Yeah. But where do you go to church at? Well, I go to church at the Sweetwater Ward. I go, or I go to, you know, it's, and, and really it is a geographic area where everybody goes to church at the same time, but multiple wards will attend the same building at different times and things. So it, there's not a direct one-to-one -one correlation, but yeah. Okay, that's interesting because I wonder then if it's depending on, you know, who's leading that particular church or and how they got shunned, you know, or, or why they got shunned, if there was just some relational dynamics there, because that's interesting. You didn't have that experience. When you left, what happened? Uh, Nothing. Well, well, I mean, basically my wife's family, because my, again, my wife, when I actually left, and this is another story, but, but I actually left before my wife did, and that caused quite a bit of tension. Um, but there was just a lot of like, oh, we're, that's really, you make us sad. You know, that's sad that you're leaving, and we're sorry that you're leaving. Um, but there was never any bit of shunning. There was just a lot of praying that I would come back. Did, were you ever told that you're going to hell because of that? Or you're not going to go to celestial heaven, or you're going to be on the I first was, level? I was not told that at that time, yeah. but that was definitely in the teachings. Like, that, that, was, that was implied in all of the teachings before yeah. that, was that... You know, you're you're just not gonna you're gonna go to heaven. You're just not gonna go to the best heaven. Yeah. Is all is is Level is basically. One. But that was again. They never said that like while I was leaving. Yeah. A lot of these things you got to be careful of too because they're not things that they'll say to you specifically. They're just included in the teachings yeah. just as a matter of course. Okay. But um. But yeah. But but that was a big thing for me was was the credibility because when I look back at it now, um, a lot of the criticisms of the Mormon Church. They may have been accurate, but I didn't perceive them at that time. Like some people would tell me they don't really believe in Jesus Christ. Well, when I was listening to the missionaries give their discussions, all they talked about was Jesus Christ. Yeah. Now, I knew I learned going deeper that I, I, I began to see the things that people had warned me of. But at that moment, I can only go off of what I'm perceiving at that time. And when you're a beginner Mormon, when you're like a baby Mormon, it's... It's it's pretty devoid of a lot of the the typical things that people criticize the Mormon Church for. That yeah, stuff comes piecemeal a little bit at a time later exactly. on. Exactly, it's a li it seems like it's a little bit at a time until you know you've you've kind of you've, you've bitten the hook in a lot of ways for a lot of people. They're getting a little bit of the surface stuff, and you know, and that that's a good question too. Is 
as you're going in there and you're starting to learn, you're starting to feel this, there's something different here. Did you go to one of the big temples? Did you ever go to the big, you know, Mormon temple here in San Diego? And so, so that's, yeah, at, at the beginning, no. Right. You know, you're just told about the temple. Um, you know, the temples in the Bible. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just interesting that you bring that up because um, I can't remember the study, but I want to say that I heard somewhere that the biggest um, moment in a Mormon's life when they typically leave the church is at the one-year mark. Mm -hmm. And that's because that's the point at which you become endowed and can enter the temple. In order to get in the temple, you have to have been a member of good standing for one year. And uh, there seems to be kind of an egress at that point because when you bring up the temple, that was one of, that was one of my first big red flags that uh, there was something not, not quite right. And what was it about that experience? <sighs> well, it, it's so difficult to say because, see, even my wife, my wife would give you a totally different experience because she was raised in the Mormon church. So she didn't, she didn't convert to it like I did at a later age. Um, but from a, very, a young child, you know, you're taught about the importance of the temple, how important the temple is for families, but you're never really told what goes on inside the temple. Um, and so when I first went into the temple, um, it, was, it was an odd experience hmm. because it's, it's very, very, very different. Um, so take takes us through as people have never, you know, been Mormon and you're walking, what is it? There's an invitation or is it, hey, I'm going to temple and you got to make an appointment or you go because you've been a member for a year in good standing. So, so what you have to is do is you excitement? actually, uh, there, there is, yeah. there is, because, you know, when you, when you go to the temple, this is like, I mean, it's like being confirmed as a Catholic. Yeah. This is like, yeah. this is kind of where you're, you're building to and you're trying to get to. And um, so, yeah, when you go to the temple, you actually are, it's not just like you just show up one day. You actually have, uh, there's a ceremony called an endowment that begins you in the temple experience. And you usually have a, a person who's like a mentor who guides you through it. Um, I had, a, I had a, a, a father, since my parents weren't Mormon, there was a father of my friend who, who guided me through the, the process. Mm. What was interesting was that as we're driving there, I had no idea what to expect because nobody talks about what goes on inside the temple. That's just not something that anybody talks about. And they tell you it's not because it's secret, it's because it's sacred. Right. And ah. So so and and so you know you never question it. You're yeah. like okay, well, and and all these people who I love and adore and are, are I trust, um, and they make me feel good. They're telling me that this is something that we do. So I'm I'm going to go along with it. So it's but formal it, dress. You're dressed up, I, I imagine. Well, yeah, you are. You you and actually you wear all white. You know, okay. it's it's actually you wear like white pants, white pants, white shirt, white tie. And uh, it's interesting because on our drive over to the temple, we we I did my endowment at the La Jolla Temple. And uh, so it's the one right off the five. And uh, as we were driving over there, what I thought was kind of odd, and I wasn't expecting this, was the, the man who was mentoring me, who, by the way, I, I adore this man to this day. He's one of the, the best people I know, just the best hearts. So I don't, I don't say this to, to, to malign him in any sure. way, but, but we're sitting in the car and he tells me, he kind of leans over me and says, you know, just so you know, there's some weird stuff that <laughs> might, might, might strike you as odd. Yeah. Oh, and wow. he pointed out, he said, some people say that this is a ceremony that, um, that Joseph Smith just copied from the Freemasons. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, even when he's telling me that, I had no idea who the Freemasons were. Yeah. And uh, he said, some people say that Joseph Smith copied this from the Freemasons. But the reason for that is because the Freemasons were just handing down a ceremony that was handed down 
since Solomon's time when they built the Solomon, the Temple of Solomon. And what that, are you thinking when you're hearing this? I'm thinking like, okay, well, I don't have any issue with it. I hadn't even been in the temple, yeah, so I didn't even right. have a doubt yet. I didn't even have a concern. Yeah. But you could tell this was clearly on his mind, and it didn't raise any red flags for me because I had a really good relationship with this man. And, and, um, and again, I had no idea what the, the Freemasons were, but I just said, okay, that's fine. And so we went into the temple, and, and it was. I mean, there's, there's, it's, it's a ceremony that's basically based around um, symbolic clothing and handshakes and passwords. Okay, so take us through it. What do you do? You, you, you arrive in the temple. What was your first thing? Did you go change clothes? Or it, did it's, you... I, it's a little vague. It's, it's hard for me to remember exactly because I'm, I'm, I think I'm a little older than I probably look and it's been a while. <laughs> but um, I remember the first, the first thing you do is like an endowment ceremony where you dress down into this garb where um, you're, you're kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's really just, you're just down into your underwear and a cloth in the front and a cloth in the back. And then, and then basically a person comes in and they, they give you a blessing from, from head, to hoe. They, they, uh, head to toe. They bless you the head, ears, knees, uh, elbows. And it's, I mean, it, it, it didn't, I mean, yeah. the, the, the activity itself seemed a little odd, but it's just a blessing on all of you. And it really was, I'm sure it was something out of the Old Testament where they're just blessing the whole person. And um, so, so that's basically your endowment. Once you do that, you basically are given you know, um, you get to put on this, you know, this, this, this special underwear, right? And yeah. it's underwear that is, um, has special symbols etched into it that are all, you know, Masonic symbols. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're all, they're all things and they're, they all have a symbolism and, and it's pretty benign symbolism. You know, it might be something that says like, you know, um, this symbol goes over the knee to remind you to kneel in prayer to God. And this symbol goes over your heart to remind you to, you know, always point your heart toward God. And this symbol reminds you to always be righteous and, and, and you know, upright before God. So, so it all has, it's, it's not weird symbolism, but it is. But it's, it's hard to symbols were they like moons and stars. No, no, they were stuff, like they were like, like they were Masonic symbols. So yeah. I don't know if you're familiar, but you know, like you've got the square. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, they call it the square. It's the just like the L oh, shape, yeah, you know. Sure. And then the compass symbol. So, so they're very basic symbols. They're not like odd, satanic-looking sure. symbols or anything like that. But they, uh, but they come straight out of the Freemasons, which I learned later. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's what that's what the underwear is meant to symbolize, and also it's meant to promote modesty because the the ruling was you should never wear clothing that isn't covered by the garments. Mm. Um, although those rules have have since changed quite a bit, because obviously if you're doing athletics or things like that, you can't wear these garments anymore. But the rules on that have changed over the years. Um, it used to be at one time that. If uh, I think in the 1800s, people would, if they took a bath, they would have to lean one leg outside the bathtub so that their garments were hanging oh, from their clothes. Oh, so it was God. always touching them. And th- those rules don't exist yeah. anymore, but those are just examples of how that worked. But you, 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 the first ceremony was, is the endowment. And that's, that's what you do when you, when you get into the temple. And then after that, you, um, and I can't remember all the, all of the ceremonies that come after it, but there's one that is, um, basically you, you watch a video. You watch a video that kind of reenacts the creation story. So it's got Adam and Eve and the, and the serpent in the garden. And, um, and it, it, it's, it's not exactly from the Bible. There's a lot of additions and changes, but it sort of connects the creation story with a series of uh, handshakes that each have symbolism related to, related to Jesus. Um, you know, some of the handshakes, for example, might be related to um, you know, like there's one where, and I, and I don't even know if I can remember it, but basically you, you clasp each other in a way that it kind of is meant to represent the Jesus being nailed to the cross. 
Now, uh, is this the person in charge of that temple that's shaking your hand, doing these handshakes? No, there's, there's a veil. You're, you're in there as a group. You're in there watching this yeah. video as a group. And there is a veil at the other end of the room. And uh, so it's kind of an interactive video. So you'll watch the video, then the video will stop and spot parts. And then you would have to kind of rearrange this, this clothing, this garb that you have. And that's one of the other strange things is, is you have this temple clothing over your, over your, your temple underwear that is all has symbolism related to the, the message being seen up on the, on the screen. Okay. Um, and so, and, and as, the, as the story progresses, as the creation story progresses, you're taking parts of this off and putting things on or moving things from the left to the right shoulder. And it's all got some kind of symbolism that explains And that they're walking throughout. you through it as yeah. you do it. Yeah. And so, like, like the message itself, and, and this, is, this is why I think, you know, some people would think, like, well, why would you just run out of there screaming at that point? But remember, the underlying message still includes Jesus in it. It still includes salvation. It's got God in it. It's, it's got heaven in it. There's, sure. there's, no, there's no worshiping anything weird. It, it, the message itself makes sense, but the symbolism is, is kind of odd. And that's, that's, that was kind of the first red flag. But at some point in the ceremony, you have to go up to this veil, and there's somebody who basically is standing, usually another worker at the temple, will be kind of behind the veil, and they will ask you for secret handshakes and passwords based on the things that you did throughout the ceremony. So all this video that you learned, you kind of learn, you kind of progressively learn these handshakes, learn these passwords. And now you go to the veil, and this guy on the other side of the veil is supposed to represent Heavenly Father, and he's going to pull you through the veil. But first, you've got to show him the correct handshakes and the correct passwords. passwords. You know, um, one of which even includes like a secret name. Like every person, when they go in the temple, they get a secret name. And uh, you're never supposed to tell anyone your secret name. Mm. You're never supposed to divulge your secret name. And it's a secret, and you're the only person that's ever supposed to know it. Hmm. Um, although it struck me as odd because you, you, if you go back to the temple and do the ceremony again, they ask you for your original secret name. And they tell you if you forgot it, you can go to the front office and ask for it, right? <laughs> And so then I always wonder, like, well, wait a minute. If I'm the only person that knows yeah. it and it's secret, why, why, how, how are they, how do they know it, right? Yeah. But, uh, but it turns out the day that you get your endowment, every male gets, like, the same name, oh. right? And every female gets the same name. Now, they don't make it sound that way. make it sound like this is a special name just for you. But everybody kind of gets the same name. So when you go up to the front office, you just tell them what, you, you give them your name. They look up the date you were endowed, and then they can look up the male names that were given out that date. And then they give you your secret name, and then you can go back to the ceremony, and now you can now you can say your secret so name. Is it so a regular name? What was it, John? They're Bob? all from the Bible. Okay, they're all so from the Bible. Biblical names. So they're all biblical names. Gotcha. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I don't even think there's any out of the Book of Mormon. They're all they're all straight out of the Bible. Um, so yeah, you might have like a Paul, a Timothy, a John, um, any of those. And for the females, there are a lot of female names too. And, uh, Did they say like if you gave up, if you told somebody what your secret name is, there's consequences? Or yeah, yeah. I think I, I can't remember exactly what it is, but I, I don't remember. It might have been something like you know somebody could fraudulently get into heaven under your name or something, okay. something kind of like that, that that didn't make a lot of sense. But but the point so of it was identity, heavenly identity. Yeah, 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 yeah. And well, and the other interesting thing of it too is that uh, later on. Um, when you get married in the temple, you get to pull your wife through the veil. Mm. And she has to give you her secret name so, so that she can get through the veil. And um, if she gets it wrong, you, you, can't, you don't get to pull her through the veil. 
So it's kind of interesting how that works. I'm, again, there's, there's all kinds of deep theology to it, but, right. uh, but, but it, was, it, stru- it struck me That's as very That's why strange. we're doing it here. Yeah. I mean, folks, this is why we're doing yeah. it here. On a Sunday morning, you can imagine, talking through all this, people will be going, what? Yeah. <laughs> so well, it's good well, that we're, and, and, we're and see, And what I didn't realize then that I realize now is that this completely undermines the atonement. Because literally, because Brigham Young even said, and I didn't know this at the time, but I learned later, but Brigham Young had said that you need to go to the temple repeatedly to perform these ordinances so that you can make sure that you know the handshakes and the passwords so that you can get past the guardian angels that are guarding heaven. So if you don't know this stuff, you're not going to get through. And so it didn't even occur to me at the time that like, wait a minute, okay, so so what was Jesus' sacrifice for? You know, mm-hmm. if, 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 if it's secret handshakes and passwords that are going to get us into heaven, where does that leave Jesus? Right. And again, 20, at this point, probably 20-year-old Jason is not thinking theologically that far ahead. Uh, all I know is the people that I love all, all love this ceremony, and I want to be accepted by them, and I want to yeah. be like them. And so... Uh, it's interesting because later on when my wife went through the ceremony, she was completely weirded out. She, mm. but, but see, she didn't even know that I was weirded out because you can't talk about it, even with your own spouse. We couldn't even tell each other that we were both weirded out about it. Later on, we told each other, we're like, yeah, that was, I didn't get that. And, uh, but we had no idea until years later after we were out of the church and we felt comfortable talking about it. I mean, it probably took years before I even felt comfortable talking about because you're not supposed to talk about this. Like, even me talking about it right now, it's like, I'm in their theology, I'm lowering myself to a very low level of hell right now. Well, not, not necessarily hell, but just the lowest yeah. part of heaven. Yeah, well, I know um, you didn't give up, you didn't tell us your name. And so no, you're no. so worried about it. No, no, <laughs> honestly, like, no, no, I, 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 you know, you can't, like, the psychology, yeah, I can't yeah. tell you. You know, um, I, I will tell you my name. My, my name was Timothy. Okay. And, and, uh, and I... The reason why I don't mind telling you that is because since that time, even through this experience, some of the positive things have come out of it. I like, I have such an appreciation for Timothy now. Yeah, like I have yeah. a special connection to him, hmm. you know? And when I, when I read a story in the Bible, I get it. It's connected to this, you know, sort of negative experience right. or whatnot in the past. But, but still there's always like, I, I keep always, when I read Timothy in the Bible, there's part of me that always says, you know, I kind of, you know, I kind of connect there's with this guy. There's an imprint there for sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So you're in the handshake. You, you go through the handshake part. What happens after that? So after the handshake part, basically you get pulled in through the veil, which represents being... So there's a literal veil. Yeah, it's a very, it's a thin, it's a, it's a curtain that you can kind of make out a shape behind it, but yeah. you can't see clearly. Okay. And it's got symbols on it too. It's basically the same symbols that you have on your, on the temple garments. That's how you walk through or do they pull you through? Yeah, yeah. You, you're, you're doing the handshakes. There's, there's actual openings in the, in the curtain where you can, you do the handshakes. So, so, so the person representing Heavenly Father can put their hand through and you can do the shakes. And, and then once they're done, they'll say, okay, you may pass. And then they, then they pull you through the veil. And once you're through the veil, then it kind of represents like you're in heaven now. And, and if I remember correctly, that's when the ceremony's done. Okay. And then you can kind of just, now you get to visit with everybody else in this very serene, peaceful temple environment that's all white and meant to, meant to really kind of make you think of heaven. And, uh, and that, that's the conclusion of, of that ceremony. Now, they do other ceremonies in there, too. Like, for example, they'll do baptisms for the dead and they'll do marriages for the dead um, because in the Mormon church, they really believe that everybody has to experience these ordinances physically. Mm-hmm. And that when you die and you're in the spirit world, you can't experience these ordinances physically. So that means you've got to have a proxy here on earth that does these on your behalf. 
So the reason why you go back to the temple over and over and over again isn't just so you can memorize the handshakes and the passwords. It's so that you can also, then the next time you go through, you don't go through for yourself anymore. You go through for this person who is, who's passed on before you. Uh, okay, yep. Now, when you're doing the handshakes, if you get it wrong, what do they do? Did you get it wrong? They, 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 they just, they, they just tell you, they, they correct you. They, they, they tell you, oh no. And there's usually somebody, there's usually a worker that represents Heavenly Father and there's somebody right next to you that's sort of guiding you and they will kind of, if you forget like lines in the thing, they'll, they'll kind of remind you of, of what to say and, and, and all those kinds of things. I wonder what happened during COVID if they shut those things down, you know, because if it's so that's important a good question. to keep doing the ordinances and that's a handshake, a physical contact situation. Don't know, but I just, that's a, that's a curious question. Okay, so you, you go through the ceremony, you're done, you walk out, is there, a, is there a reception or is it just, okay, you leave and it's like, well, that was weird, and move on. Uh, I mean, there, there would be a reception if my family were in the church, but I was the only one. Like my, my parents, as a matter of fact, did not approve of my joining the Mormon church. I, they, um, as a matter of fact, my dad was super mad at me and didn't talk to me for a while. So mm-hmm. when I got out of there, I only had my friend's dad to kind of, you know, you know, congratulate me and say thank you. Uh, or, or say, you know, congratulations. But, um, but for a lot of other people in the church, if their family were in it and they had a lot of friends, then yeah, they would, it'd be kind of like graduating college. They'd probably have a get together and a, and a festivity at the home. But I basically went home to a really kind of ticked off mom and mom and dad, unfortunately. So, okay. And then what happens after that? So you're, you're part of the church. Now you've had your endowment ceremony, you've done all that. Were you elevated in the church more or was just more your was there any more responsibility you, you were able to have? So, so, so for me, I became an elder in the church. So they, they called me an elder at that point. Okay. You basically get what they call the Melchizedek priesthood. Mm-hmm. Um, and so priesthood is huge in the Mormon church because every male is supposed to hold the priesthood in some form or fashion. And uh, so, yeah, I became an elder. I had the Melchizedek priesthood. And for most males, and in my case as well, going to the temple is is part of what you need to do to be able to go on a mission, to serve a mission as a, as, a, as a missionary. And so in large part, the reason why I did that temple ceremony was so that I could then become a missionary uh, in the church. And which you just said, like, that's a requirement, right? Like after the temple, all males are required to go on a two-year mission, or They're is not, that optional? It is optional. Oh, okay. Um, it's optional, although... Um, you know, if, if you're in the church and you don't go on a mission, everybody's looking at you like wondering why aren't you yeah, on your yeah. mission now? Okay. Um, and, and there's a strong culture of a belief that they teach that you really have to go on a mission to be able to get married in the church. Okay. Um, again, it's not a requirement, but if you're not on mission, the question is going to become, well, why didn't you go? And to the female population of the church, they're kind of raised, like you want to marry your return missionary. And, and, they, and they have reasons for that. Like, sure. and, and one of the reasons, and, and it's actually a valid reason, is that when you go on a mission, you, you have to learn sacrifice and you learn service because you're gone for two years. Commitment. Commitment. Yeah. And, and so there really is, and I think they're right in this, that you know, going on a mission in a lot of cases makes, makes for better husbands. Yeah. And, and so there, there's a logic behind it. It's not just a, it's not just a cultural thing. There is a, there's a logic in it, and it, it's not, I wouldn't say it's totally off on that because sure. most of the people I knew, when I went on my mission, um, the yeah, guys I went go? with, where'd you go? I was in, I was in uh, the Yucatan, okay. Mexico. Yeah. So, um, so I basically would go to uh, different places on the Yucatan Peninsula, Merida, uh, Cancun. So did you already know Spanish or did you have to learn Spanish? I had studied Spanish in college, 
but uh, when you go on a mission, um, you have you have about two months of intensive preparation to to really familiarize you with the language before you go down. Uh, a lot of people go down there; they don't speak the language hardly at all yet. Okay. There were actually there was at least one missionary in my mission who he just never got the hang of the language. He ended up having to go home and finish his mission in some place in the states because he just he couldn't grasp the language, and it was very it's very stressful to live in a country when you don't know the language. Um, but I already had a lot of familiarity with Spanish, so I was pretty fluent early on. How'd they choose? Did they choose Yucatan or did you have a group? No, they chose. I, I, so I sent in, in paperwork that says I want to go on a mission and then I, I got a letter and then the big reveal, everybody opens up the envelope to see where they're going. Wow. And uh, <clears throat> so I had no idea where I was going until I opened the envelope. So what do you, how are you supported there? The church pays for all your expenses. Do you have to raise money to go on that mission? How are you fed? I mean, Is typically all... typically the parents pay for it, but my parents were not members, oh. and they were not going to pay for it. So I, what I did was I, I worked um, two years of my college. Uh, I, I'd actually – I went when I was a little bit older. Usually you go when you're 19. I think I was about 20. Uh, I'd gone to college for a couple um, – about two years, and at the meantime, I was working, and I was saving up money, and, and pretty much all that money I used to pay for part of the mission. I couldn't pay for all of it, and the church basically raised money, and they, they, they paid for the rest of it. Okay, good. So when you're on that mission, it's two years, right? That's the requirement, mm -hmm. typically, right? So two years. What, what are you sensing? What are you feeling? And what kind of recruitment are you doing at that point? Are you winning people over to the Mormon church? Are, is there a quota? What does it look like? So, yeah, when, I, when, I, when you go on the mission, you're basically taught what they call the, the discussions. There's seven discussions. And it's actually really well organized. I mean, I don't know if they still do it this way, but in, in the day that I did it, the, you would teach seven discussions, which would walk people through all the essential doctrines of the church. Um, really not unlike kind of how we do our, our seven steps program. And it... it, it and so your, your goal is to like memorize these discussions and to learn these things inside and out. So what you do when you get down to Mexico, there's no, there's no real quota, but there's a lot of pressure to make sure that, that you're, you're getting converts, that you're, that you're baptizing people. So we would, I mean, we kept careful stats of like how many of the first discussion we taught, um, how many of the second discussion we taught, um, how many people we baptized, uh, so, so there were there were careful numbers, and, and they would track these, and they were always encouraging us to get more and more numbers as best as we could. And so that's that's what we would do is we'd knock on doors and we'd go and try and find people who wanted to hear the message, and then we would start we would visit them about seven different times, sharing a different message each time. Okay. And uh, so that that was that was the the the, the meat and potatoes of, of how we would share the gospel, as it were. But. We would also do service. You would have certain hours where you would try to do service projects, and and I think it was like about four per week. And uh, yeah, th th that was that was kind of how it worked. It's interesting though because just like with a lot of other things in the church, there really wasn't like a quota, like you have to have this set of numbers or okay. you're going to be disciplined or anything like that. But I remember I felt a lot of pressure to try to get as many discussions and get as many baptisms as I possibly could. And I remember it caused me to lose sleep a lot at night because. To be honest with you, I was a like horrible missionary. Like I, my numbers were always at the bottom of the stats. They they used to have like a little uh, I can't remember it was a weekly or a monthly little little pamphlet they would put out, and the missionaries who had the most discussions or the most baptisms, they'd always get their faces in this little this thing called the the Estrella Millonario, right? The the the, millen the millennial star, 
and they'd get their faces in there. And I was like, I want to get my face on there one week. I never did. Not even like an honorable mention, right? I was horrible. Of that but, but, but yeah, but, 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 and, and honestly, like, like I kind of laugh about it now, but I used to like kind of cry myself asleep at night about it. Yeah. Because like for me, it's like, this is, this is the way I could show my love for God is by bringing people into yeah. his kingdom. And for me to have such low numbers, uh, nobody ever told me this. But the impression I got through all the teachings was that I was doing something wrong. Ah, uh, okay. Okay, that it's like, I'm not doing it, I'm not praying enough, I don't have enough, I'm just not, don't have enough spirit in me. And, and I kept, and I, all I did was I would just feel guilty at night because I felt like, what am I doing wrong mm. that's not reaching these people? What am I not saying? I'm just not connected with the spirit. Because a lot of the other issues were having a lot of success. Mm. I mean, a lot, they were, they were having a lot of success. Now, step Flash forward to 48-year-old Jason Siegman, I have a better idea of why that is. Mm -hmm. Because um, what would happen was I, I really truly, truly believed everything that I was teaching as a missionary. Sure. I mean, and I believed like this will sell itself. Yeah. I thought if I go out there, all I got to do is knock on a door. And if I tell them this message, it's going to resonate with the spirit's going to touch them and they're going to hear this and they're going to want to accept it. And it, it doesn't work. Like yeah. it no, like people were like, you know, they're very nice, but they were like, no, thank you. Um, but I noticed that the missionaries who were having a lot of success, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying this for every missionary in the world in the Mormon church. I can only speak to what I observed personally sure. while I was on my mission, was that the, the missionaries who were having a lot of success were, were using a lot of pressure tactics. Mm. And they weren't pressure tactics that were taught by the church. They were just, you know... Um, they wanted numbers. They wanted numbers. Yeah, it's sure. kind of the natural result. It would be like if you were like a car salesman and yeah. you're told you want to keep your job, you got to get, or you want to get your, your face in this newspaper, you got to do some stuff. And the thing about it is in the Yucatan, and I don't know how familiar are you, it is with it down there, but a lot of people are poor, illiterate, um, uh, field workers. Um, and so it really was kind of easy for these missionaries to kind of talk people and kind of guilt people into it. You sure. know, I mean, I would see, I would see things like where they might say like, you know, you want to please God, don't you? Mm. Um, you, I mean, you, you really, you believe the Mormon church is true, right? Because you would, you don't, you wouldn't want God to be angry with you, would you? Yeah. Now that was not, that was not part of the message that the church was saying to share. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the church was telling us, don't do that. Wow. But, uh, but that's what was happening in a lot of cases. And, um, and so I remember these guys would get their faces on this, 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 uh, on this Estrella Millonario, and I would just sit there and, and again, guilting myself over my failure as a missionary and, and just looking at them as if they're super awesome and successful and not realizing that I was, I was missing the point. So you get through that two years, mm -hmm. you come back. As you're leaving and you're coming back, what are you thinking is next for you within the Mormon church? How is that going to apply to your life? Is it as you're ending that mission, is it, hey, um, you know, you're going to go back to that church and go on with your life? Or are they saying, here's what's next for you? So the, the typical next steps for, for a missionary when they come back is, is to get married. I mean, that's, that's the next step. But there wasn't a lot of pressure for that. I didn't, nobody was pressuring me for that. More than anything, I, I felt like I wanted to try and help my parents and my family to join the church because okay. none of them had accepted it. Um, they had, once I had joined, they had seen, you know, cause they had heard that I would shun them and I would, I wouldn't talk to them once I joined the church. But when they realized that that wasn't happening and that I, you know, had, had stayed really close with them, they really opened up to the Mormon church. They opened up to hearing the messages, but they never joined. 
And, uh, and so I, was, I always felt like, well, I've got to be a good example and try and help them get into the church. Mm. So that was like my, my number one priority when I came back. That wasn't necessarily a, an expectation from the church. But uh, when I came back, it was, it was hard coming back because I had been living in like pretty abject poverty for about two years. Mm. And so I just did not feel, I felt like this tremendous sense of guilt, like, like, why do I have it so easy here? Because I would come home and I would see all these awesome things that I had. And, and I remembered all the families down in Mexico that would never have anything like a hot shower. I mean, when I would take showers, the way we would take showers down in Mexico is there would be a cistern at the bottom, right? And you would fill, you'd fill a bucket full of water and you'd have to carry it up to the shower and you'd have a little, uh, like usually like a butter tub. And you would just sit there on a little stool and you'd pour this butter tub of water over yourself, scrub a little soap on there and then you'd pour some more water on it. And uh, so I don't, I don't think in two years I was ever clean. I must have had a layer of like dirt on me, like an inch thick. So I felt really guilty when I came back because all of a sudden I'm taking a hot shower again and I'm living in air conditioning and everything's great. But, um, but as you know, like after probably about a month or two, I got completely over that and I was very comfortable yeah, being back in San Diego. Yeah. But, but the next step was really get married. And I didn't, again, I didn't feel pressure to do that. But one thing, one thing that I will say that, that the Mormon church did really well and that I'm grateful for for this day is um, is the way that they run their their young single adult programs. I mean, they have churches, they have wards that are completely just dedicated to young single adults. So the whole church is, you know, they'll have like some older grown adults who kind of manage the church, but for most part, it's all the young single adults teaching each other and fellowshipping each other and, do, and, and doing all kinds of activities. I mean, we would go bowling all the time and we're going to Denny's and and we're just living, like, it was probably the happiest time of my life. I mean, it was just this wonderful time where you're, you're making friends with everybody. And that was how I met my wife. Mm. I mean, it really was through the, the, the young single adults. So, you know, sometimes, like, when, when I talk to my wife about, like, you know, how I'm, I'm kind of glad I, I, you know, I got out of the Mormon church, she always reminds me, she's like, yeah, but you understand that if you hadn't been in there, you wouldn't have met me. And I'm like, yeah, God, you know, you know God works through mysterious ways. And, uh, and I am to this day, I'm, I'm so grateful for my wife and... and and how she's been in my life. But it, it, was, it was through that interaction in the church environment. You know, I didn't have to go to bars. I didn't have to go online. I didn't have to meet somebody at work. You know, it was, it was in a church environment where you're meeting people with similar beliefs. And, and that was how I met her. And, and a lot of people met each other that way. And so we were married. I mean, I think I was like 22, 23 when I got married. So we were married pretty young. And, um, and we had our first son like a year after that. So um, I remember life moves fast in the Mormon church. Yeah. 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 I remember uh, being recruited by Jim Dietz at San Diego state to play baseball there. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, taken around the campus on a Friday night parties everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I remember going down kind of, there's some frats and all these parties going on. And there was another party in this parking lot, like idea, and there's these tent kind of things out. And I'm like, well, what, what frat is that? And they're like, no, no, that's a church. Mm -hmm. And I said, it's a church. And it was a bunch of young adults, bunch of young people doing, you know, some gathering they were having at the Mormon church. They said, ah, oh, that's a, that's a Mormon church. I didn't know much about what mm -hmm. that was other than from high school with my buddies. I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. But I thought what you just said, that was a big deal. Like mm -hmm. they really emphasized that with the young adults, college age, all that kind of thing. And that's what you experienced. You just said you met your wife there it, and all that. The social aspect was huge. And, and, you know, when I look back on my own experience, when I think of, like, it's, it's hard for me sometimes to differentiate between my spiritual experiences and my social experiences. And yeah. I think that's, that's common for a lot of Mormons is that it's hard to tell. Well, let me give you an example. 
Um, I remember one time my, my wife's parents were coming home from church, and we were kind of asking them, like, we were out of the church at that time, but we were still really close with my wife's family, still are close with my wife's family. And, but we asked my, uh, my in-laws, hey, so what went on at church today? And she's like, well, you know, sister, sister so-and-so, uh, her son just went on a mission, and brother so-and-so, he just got baptized, and brother and so-and-so just had, you know, colon surgery, and he, but he's doing well, you know. And, and none of it had to do with whatever message was shared that day. Mm-hmm. It was all about brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, everybody else in the church. And when I thought back, I realized, you know, yeah, so much of it is is the social aspect is yeah. is and 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 it's difficult to differentiate that from, you know, your own personal relationship with Jesus. I think that's why, like, I struggled when I came out of the Mormon Church because it's hard to replace that social experience when your family isn't in it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. when you're when you're going to some place where your family is and all of your friends are. It's really hard, even even here at Skyline. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. The first time I came into Skyline, I was welcomed like it was my family. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the people here, the greeters, every I felt immediately welcomed. Not every church does that. Yeah. And honestly, it's kind of an unrealistic expectation because how are you ever going to compare to somebody's family? Yeah. But that social aspect was was huge, and it's hard to duplicate. Which makes it difficult to pull away. And so you're you're in this environment. You know, you're starting to recognize some things aren't aren't right or just off or weird. What was that process? What was kind of that final straw? If you will, said, "Man, we got to get out of here." So that's an interesting question because um, I, I feel like the first moment when I really started actually actively considering leaving the church was when I was. Um, I was trying to help an individual who was a member of the church but was no longer going to church. And I was trying to help him leave the church. I'm sorry, not leave. I was trying to help him get back into the church. I wanted him to go back to church. And I remember I I asked him a question. I said, you know, well, why don't you go? And I honestly wanted to know because I was like, I want to know why it is that you don't go so maybe I can address it. And I remember he said, well, do you have a moment? (laughs) And I'm like, well, yeah, sure. And so he started listing off a few things. And one of, one of the ones that struck me really, really hard, and again, I, I've never heard anybody else complain about this, but for me, it really bugged me. He said that uh, one of his biggest complaints was Brigham Young's um, denigration of, of blacks in the, in the 1800s. And I'd never heard of any of this. I'm like, what do you mean? And he says, well, you know that, that Brigham Young had said that that um, blacks will never hold the priesthood, and if they do, then amen to the power of the priesthood. So, so, so that was a quote by Brigham Young, where basically he said, "Look, you're not, you can't either 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 blacks will never hold the priesthood within the Mormon Church, or that means that the that at that point the priesthood has ceased to exist in the Mormon Church." And I thought that's crazy. That's like really harsh. I don't. I love Brigham Young, and I I, I don't picture him saying that. And he he just he told me he says, "I'm not telling you." Like, you have to believe me. I'm just telling you why I don't. You ask me why I don't go, and I'm telling you one of the reasons I don't go. And so I was going to refute this. I'm like, this, there's no way. So I went and I did some research. And you got to dig quite a bit. And there's books out there, and you can find them online. Um, Journal of Discourses, uh, Church History. These are all books that the average Mormon does not read, but that contain all this stuff. And when I found out that, yeah, absolutely, he's absolutely correct, that Brigham Young had said that, and, uh, and the context of it didn't make sense to me. And the problem was, was that this, 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 was a, this, was a, this just, just wasn't just a 
question of faith. This was a logic issue because you're taught that a prophet speaks for God and that, that, that you're even told in the Mormon church that a, a God, God would kill a prophet rather than allow him to lead the church astray. Mm. So therefore, if you assume that, then, then Brigham Young is a prophet, and so what he says has to be true. But yet in, I think it was 1976, the blacks did receive the priesthood. They do receive the priesthood to this day, which, I mean, I think is great. But this puts a conundrum. It's like, wait a minute, but he said they never would. Yeah. And he said that if they ever did, that that means the priesthood doesn't exist anymore. So you're only left with two possible logical conclusions. Either Brigham Young was never a prophet, or the priesthood doesn't exist anymore today. Either way, you've now lost the whole reason for the Mormon church. And so I, I, I really got hung up on that. And so then I, I started realizing, well, you know, I got I to gotta dig into this a little bit more. Now, at this point, I'd become a, I'd become a police officer. So I had learned a lot about evidence and a lot more critical thinking skills than I had had in my 20s. And I was looking a lot more deeply. I was at, and actually, at that point, I had a number of cases that had forced me to kind of rethink my reality. Mm. You know, I mean, I had cases where I, would, I, I was able to come to an initial conclusion about whether this person committed this crime or not, and it just seemed solid like they had. But then once I dug and dug and dug, I realized I was wrong. Mm. And it kind of shook my confidence a little bit, but it also built up within me a sense that we have to, we have to dig, we have to investigate, we can't just take things at face value. Yeah. And so, so as a result of my investigative experience and all these cases that I was working where, where things just were not what they seemed on the surface, I, I, I just started applying that to my religious experience. I, I started thinking like, look, I got to look at some of these beliefs that I have, the way that I look at my cases, like how do I substantiate them? And to be honest with you, I did not want to disprove the Mormon church. Yeah. I wanted to prove the Mormon church. I wanted to find evidence that would help this guy get back into the church. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a reverse Lee Strobel, right? With yeah. the case for Christ. It was kind of like, like Lee, Lee Strobel goes around and he's trying to, to disprove Christianity in the process. He ends up becoming converted himself. Same with C.S. Lewis, by the way. And, and, and there's another author I really like too, uh, J. Warner Wallace. I mean, mm -hmm. you, you know, there's, there's different people I've come across that have had the same experience. So I was trying to prove the Mormon church. And in the process, I kept coming across pieces of evidence over and over and over again that were refuting, that, that were presenting evidence not only that this wasn't true, but it was more likely than not that it wasn't true. Yeah. And so that, that was, so, so it's interesting that it was, it was just, just Brigham Young's speech that kind of started it. But then I started looking at things like, like the polygamy issue. Yeah. I mean, the Mormon church doesn't practice polygamy today. And I always believe that, all right, well, polygamy is this thing that, that the Old Testament validates because it's in the Old Testament, of course. And so I thought, well, you know, Brigham, you know, Brigham Young and Joseph Smith may have practiced polygamy, but it's biblical, it's in the Bible, so I guess, I guess it you know, was okay. And then as I learned, I started learning about like things in the Bible that are like say descriptive versus prescriptive. And I started learning that, well, maybe, you know, even though the Bible describes polygamy, it doesn't mean that God was prescribing that this was how people should live. And then when I started learning that Joseph Smith had not only practiced polygamy, but that some of his wives were still married to other husbands and some of them were underage, it was like, okay, this doesn't match any paradigm that anybody had told me for, for how polygamy would have been practiced. Even, even when they taught about polygamy, it was totally different. So, I mean, that's just the surface of things. And, and it was just thing after thing after thing after thing. And at some point, you know, I, I went to my wife and I said, you know, I can't go anymore. 
And that was hard. That was really hard because, you know, for, for my wife and even for me up to that point, like church is family. So for her, I might as well have been telling her I'm leaving you. Yeah. Now, I wasn't going to leave her. I had no intention of leaving her. Um, I, I, was, I was totally willing to take her to church. I told her I'd support you still going to church. I, you know, I, I, don't, I, I told her I don't want my lack of belief in this to affect you necessarily. I want you to make your own decision. Were you telling her, look, I'm, I'm finding this stuff out? And yeah. w- what was her response to any of the stuff, like Brigham Young stuff? Was she... She, you know, for her, and, you know, even to this day, she, and she, she's absolutely right. She says, she basically told me, like, you, you dig too much into the weeds. And she's correct, okay? I mean, like, look at me. Like, now I am working on a master's degree in biblical studies because I love getting deep into things. Um, and to her... It's not about that. To her, religion, I mean, she really, I think she would have been really at home with the early, you know, John Wesley's and all them, where it's just, it's just go to church, love God. That's the priority. And so for her, doctrinal things and stuff like that didn't, even to this day, a lot of those things are just like, that's, you're thinking too hard about it. And she's right. I mean, you know, sometimes we can think way too hard about things and sure. think ourselves out of our own faith. And to her, that's what I was doing. Um, so, so yeah, it was, it was what, a big what struggle turned her to, to be able to say, you know what, I'm out, let's go to, Skyline. well, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I want to re misrepresent what she would say, but, uh, my recollection of it is, and, and, uh, let me find the camera. I apologize, honey, if I get this wrong, you can, <laughs> you know, you can yell at me later. But, but one of her initial complaints was actually like, they started making, they started firing the people who were cleaning the church and they started making us clean the church. <laughs> and she was like, not having that, right? Because like everybody had to go in on Saturdays and clean the church. And all of a sudden you could tell that she's like, ah, you know. So my wife's very practical in that way. I can get very theoretical, and, but she's very practical in her beliefs. And uh, but I think also part of it just had to do with the fact that, you know, we were, we did have a great relationship. And she sensed that there was, there was a, a bridge going between us. And I, I think... She, she would never say this, but I feel like, like for her, it was important to be with me. And so we, we both, uh, at, at, and, and it wasn't very long after. It didn't, it didn't take very long. Um, but I, I can, I can I, she'll tell you to this day, she, my wife's very independent. And she did not leave that church because I left the church. She didn't leave for any of the same reasons. She came to her own conclusion. And, and it turned out later, I found out later, that she was bothered by the temple ceremonies. It, it didn't, th- those things didn't make sense to her. And especially because they didn't jive with her, again, that lemon tree. Like, she's raised on Jesus and the Bible. And I think that's why a lot of Mormons sometimes get really confused when it's Christians. We say, oh, well, well, you're not really Christian. You don't believe in the same Jesus. Because a lot of Mormons haven't gone deep like I yeah, have. Right. Not all of them have gone there. And my wife didn't. You know, my wife was, she was she's a very simple faith. Very simple, um, and I don't mean simple by like dumb. I mean yeah, simple no, like like yeah. show me the bare brass tacks. Like what is it that Jesus wants me to do, and I'm going to do it. Um, she didn't have to get into the theology and the doctrine of it. So for her, like even when you were giving your series on the, some of the things the Mormons believe, she'd kind of look over, look over me sometimes and whisper like, "Did we believe that?" <laughs> you know, and I'm like, "Yeah, we did." And yeah. she's like, "I, you know, I yeah. didn't know." Yep. So yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and that's one of the things that we we encourage because as far as digging in. We know if someone really goes after the evidence, you know, you're going to find it. Yeah. You're going to find the evidence for all the things that are talked about in Scripture, like like Lee Strobel did, mm-hmm. you know, like C.S. Lewis and so many others. That's why we're not afraid for people to go to go dig, go. You know, that's why, like you said, you're digging more. You're going after another degree. Well, that was my experience. I had doubts, and I started mm-hmm. to really dig in and learn 
I want to get these doubts answered. I want to mm-hmm. find out, you know, how does all this stuff really line up? Because if it's true, then it, it, it deserves my life. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean every person gives their life to Christ is going to be a pastor and full-time minister, yeah. but it does mean that I'm going to understand his plan for my life. And that's the thing that as I kept digging, getting another degree and another degree, it was because I wanted to keep learning. And I really saw it as, okay, once he called me into full-time ministry, because I got three more degrees after being called into full-time ministry, it was the idea of, I really saw it as a doctor. If you go to a doctor, you want to make sure that guy knows everything or that gal knows everything they can about Mm -hmm. their subject. Because if they're going to do surgery on me, I don't want them to be kind of yeah. uh, known about the subject. I want them to be really thoroughly educated and experienced too. Mm-hmm. So that's why I did that. And I think, you know, as we go along with this, this uh, faith and culture, what we're trying to bring to people is that idea. Like we want to investigate stuff yeah. and we want to not, not just say something on a Sunday, mm-hmm. but let's bring even more proof of that yeah. in front of people to say, what was your experience with what we talked about on Sunday? And so I'm, I'm thrilled with that. But, but as we kind of wrap up this session, what, what was it that got you to come to Skyline? Was there someone that invited you? Were you driving by? And then you already mentioned it felt like family pretty quickly, but how yeah, did that so, all that come about? So, well, first of all, I mean, there was, there was about 10 years between the time I left the Mormon church and the time I came to Skyline. Okay, so in that time, is it you're checking stuff out, or were you just like, hey, I need just a... We, we, I tried to, I, I, no, I, I said immediately after I left the Mormon church, I said, you know what, I want to find a church. I knew that church okay. was important. And I, I went around and I visited a lot of different churches. And um, I, I was really struggling because I knew I needed to go to church. I, again, that's the lemon tree thing, right? It's, it's when you rip away the vine, what I didn't realize is I had a really unhealthy lemon tree left. It was still a lemon tree. It still had an, uh, an, a belief in the Bible, a belief in Jesus Christ, but it was now damaged. Yeah. It was damaged because of, of all of this. And so I didn't realize that. So when I started going to other churches, I just thought it's, I'm just going to be able to plug in right away. And we did. We, we actually found, we found a church. Uh, my, my, wife, my wife always likes me to test the waters first. So she's like, you go out and you test the churches. <laughs> then when you find one, I'll follow you, right? Scout, yeah. so, so I did. I, I visited a couple different churches, and then I found a pretty good church that I really liked. And they were all Bible-based, and it was, it was one of the Calvary chapels. And, and uh, I felt kind of welcome there, and, and I went there, and um, I told my wife, I said, I think, I think we can plug in here. This is going to be great. And so we showed up at church that Sunday, and then the pastor gave this scathing message on the Mormons. And we were not ready for that. Right, like we were, we wanted to plug in, but um, the thing is, is and, and this is something that a lot, a lot of people don't realize is that the Mormon Church is very adamant that they do not encourage talking poorly of other religions. Mm. Like they will, they will emphasize, they will overly emphasize. Like, like I don't even remember an incident in church where they criticized any other specific church. Mm. Um, there was just this belief that you know what, you pray for other churches and you pray that they'll come to the truth but you don't trash talk them. And now I know now 48-year-old Jason understands that that sort of what I would call trash talk has its place. I mean, you you got to have the truth. I know you you use the analogy it's kind of like a brick, right? You got the truth is a brick. You could put velvet on it, you could try and soften it in a little bit, but it's still it could still be a little hard and you you still need to hear it. Yeah. Um but in the Mormon church there there you don't really talk negatively about other religions. 
And so when we went to that church and the pastor, and again, he's, he's very well-intentioned. He's, he's preaching it like it is. He's saying, you know, it's not Christianity and this, but, but it just sounded really negative, and it kind of left us with, an, with, a, with a bad feeling in our stomach. And, and I, got, I got really discouraged after that. I said, you know what? I've tried. I've tried to find churches, and this one, you know, it's, there's not the family feel there. And the first time I take my wife, she's got a bad feeling about it, and I didn't have a really good feeling about it either. So we kind of resolved. We said, you know, we'll do church at home. We'll just, we'll, we'll still believe in God. We'll still pray. We'll read the Bible and stuff, but we'll just do our own church at home. Mm. And, uh, and of course now you, and you, you address this in Shark Week and in your message that, you know, there's, there's a certain level of like just drift that occurs and that's what happened to us. And so we tried to, to maintain a faith in Jesus, but over time I really started like just disconnecting from God, mm. just period. I was kind of went into a form of, I mean, it really was, it was, I was becoming an agnostic because I didn't really feel a relationship with God. I was not connected to a church. I didn't think I could get connected to a church. There were times even where my wife and I would talk about, well, let's just go back to the Mormon church. I said, we'll just roll our eyes a whole lot in the back when they say the stuff we don't agree with, but at least we'll be in a church. But I could never bring myself to do that because I knew that in the Mormon church, you can't just be half in. You had to be all in. And I knew I could never, like, I could sit in there when they talk about the Bible and when they talk about Jesus, but anytime they'd mention the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith, I'd have to sigh really heavily and roll my eyes. And, yeah. and, and I wanted to go somewhere where I could be all in. And, uh, and, and I really wasn't there. And I did. I mean, I, I became pretty much a strong agnostic. What brought me here was, was um, after my mom died. After my mom died, I, um, I just went through a really, not just, not just a depression because she died, but just this strong sense of like, I don't know what my purpose is. I don't have purpose anymore. I don't, I mean, know what life is for. Like, why do we live? Do we live just here to be who we are and then, and then die this slow, painful death? I mean, it was, watching my mom slowly pass away from cancer was, was the most miserable experience of my life. And we weren't plugged into a church, so there was no comfort there. And I, I had absolutely nothing. But um, in the middle of that, in the midst of that, I hit such a rock bottom depression of sadness that I, it's kind of interesting. I just finally said, you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to give myself over to Jesus because nothing else will work. And uh, I knew that, you know, therapy, none of that stuff was going to work. And I had, I mean, I had, a, I had a true spiritual experience. I had the kind of experience that I can't explain. And so it wasn't a logic thing. It wasn't like a, okay, now let me rationalize my way back into the church. It was, it was a spiritual, emotional experience that I know came from God. And, and that was when, and my wife will remember, she'll remember the moment if you ever asked her about it. We're standing in the kitchen, and she remember I was sitting there, and I was like crying, and I had like snot running down my nose, and I was looking all sorry for myself. And, uh, and I was, didn't tell her, I wasn't even listening to her. She couldn't even hear what I was, was thinking in my mind. But it was at that moment where I just kind of resolved. I said, you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to give myself to Jesus no matter what. I don't care if it makes sense or it's logical or if I find a church or what. It's the whatever prayer. Yeah. You know, exactly what you've talked about. And, and I did the whatever prayer at that moment. I remember I felt such an, an intense relief. It kind of hurt, actually. Mm-hmm. And, and my wife says she looked at me and she said, I just kind of straightened up. My eyes brightened up. And, and she even looked at me and she said, like, what just happened? Like, mm-hmm. is, are you okay? And I'm like, I, I'm great. You know, and um, and it was like from that moment on, I just knew I had to get plugged in. So I just did the thing again. I just started looking for churches, I, I, and I probably visited a dozen churches before I came to Skyline. And then uh, tell us about the worst one. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right. No, actually, they were they were all really they were really good churches, and I was having a, it, 
unlike the first time when I looked for a church, I, I, I was, I think when I first got out of the Mormon church, I had this laundry list of things I wanted a church to satisfy. And I couldn't satisfy that. But the second time when I went, it was like, I don't care what the churches are. I just know I need to belong to a church. Yeah. I need to plug in somewhere. And I wasn't picky at all. I wasn't like, oh, that one's got a coffee shop, but that one doesn't. And this one's pastor's nice, and that one isn't. I was like, I don't care. I just need to know where God wants me to go. Yeah. Even if it's someplace I don't want to go to, I don't care. And even if the pastor says a message I don't agree with, I don't care. Mm. All I want to do is know that it's where God wants me to be. Yeah. And, um, and so when, when I came to Skyline, I think really what struck me, the moment I knew that this was going to be my church, was you were given your series on losing your religion, right? Mm. How appropriate is that for me, right? Because wow. I had lost my religion at that point. So I show up your church day one, and I remember one of the things I was thinking through my mind is that I was scared of doing what I did at the Mormon church. Um, what I mean by that is I call it writing a blank check. You know, where you go to a church and you just write a blank check and you say, okay, I'm going to sign my name to it. And you just fill in whatever I'm supposed to believe. Yeah. Right? And, and I says, I'm not doing that. And I even came in with, I, I kind of had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, a little bit still. I mean, I knew I wanted to go where God wanted me to go. What I didn't, what I didn't fully trust was that the pastor would know, like, what God wanted me to do. You know what I mean? Like, I trusted in God, but I didn't trust the church. And, and I think that's what a lot of Mormons have when they come out of the Mormon church is that They've put their trust in a church. Um, one of the things people don't understand is that when you join the Mormon church, you want to, you are establishing not a relationship with God. You are, you are establishing a relationship with that church and yeah. trusting that that church can mediate that relationship with God. When the church lets you down, now you have serious trust issues with every other church out there. Um, my brother-in-law also, he, he left the Mormon church. And he is, uh, as far as I can tell, he's full-on atheist right now. And a lot of, I think that happens to some Mormons because, again, their, their lemon tree is damaged and they don't want to trust anybody. They can't trust a church. So when I came in, I was not wanting to trust a church. I kind of came with the attitude like, all right, I'm just going to listen to what the pastor says. When he says stuff that I just totally disagree with, I'm just going to roll my eyes and roll with it because God wants me here, but I'm not necessarily going to give myself over to this church yeah. in that way anymore. And, uh, and so what happened was that first Sunday, you were sharing a message talking about relationship versus religion. You were talking about how it's about relationship with Jesus and not about religion. And that, that hit me like a, like, a, like a brick, right? Like that brick of truth. It just smacked me. And I, was, I instantly felt like, okay, no, this is where I want to go because I didn't want to join a church. I wanted to have a relationship with Jesus, and I wanted to find a church that would help me with that relationship. I didn't want to join another cult. I didn't want to, you know, sign another blank check. I just wanted to have a relationship with Jesus. And, and when you said that, that was really what, what really struck me. And so then the next Sunday, I brought my wife over, and she loved the next service. So then we were good to go, and we, we've been going ever since. So we were, we're, we're, we're good to go now. And that is awesome. Thank you for, you know, taking time to share that story, sharing your experience in the Mormon church. We trust that it's been helpful to everybody who's here. And, you know, when we look at Twisted Scripture, because we're going to be talking more about this series. I think about how important it is when we want to tie in everything that we're doing with faith and culture. Because you look at now, uh, Scripture is being used in so many different ways. Gavin Newsom just put out a billboard in places like South Carolina, um, and he put the billboard and said, you know, if you need help with an abortion to come to California, and he used a Bible verse 
Love your neighbor as yourself. And he put the Matthew uh, Bible verse under that. So think about that. Think about how twisted things are getting more and more when you look at uh, the governor of California would place billboards in other states for you know, having uh, abortions in our state to kill babies, to murder babies in our state and using scripture to justify it. That's the kind of thing that happens and it's happening more and more. And so we want to continue to get the message out to, uh, to more of you. So share this message today. Share it with your oikos, those 8 to 15 people that are in your relational network, because you just never know how an invite can absolutely change a life. Just a simple invite. And you know what? God is working and God is moving just like he is through Jason and just like he is through many of you. We look forward to hearing even more of your stories and other people that we bring in here to really help us to not just learn more about our faith and in the culture, but how do we practically live out our faith in a culture that is increasingly antagonistic towards Christians? We'll look forward to that on the next episode. God bless you guys.